This never happened to the other fella. And that jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to another episode of the Power of Three podcast. Except this time, it's the Power of Three family tree. And today, we're going to be talking about not one gentleman who changes his face on a regular basis and has been on our screen since the 60s, but another. We're going to go all things 007. Today, we're talking Bond, James Bond, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm Kenny Smith. And today we're joined by 006 foot 5, Tom Harris. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Harris, I expect you to shut your face while I introduce our other co-conspirator. It's 00 whatever. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're all well. <laughs> FS. I know, I know. <laughs> I suppose that there's always been a bit of a sort of an, an interest between James Bond and Doctor Who, given that, as I said earlier, it's a part that's been played by several actors to varying degrees of success over the years. Tom, how long have you been a Bond fan? Well, uh, we should have a little jingle with a, a recorded that says, Tom shows us his age, or something like that, <laughs> because on the Magic Secret Service, is the first James Bond film I ever saw, and I saw it on its original release in the cinema in 1969. It was one of the first films I ever went to see, and the only reason I was taken by my two big brothers to see it is because my mum wanted us all out of the house, which was a, a frequent occurrence. And I remember being very, very excited because I'd heard so much about James Bond. And I remember little bits and pieces from originally seeing it. I remember vaguely being bored. I mean, I was five years old. Who, what five-year-old is going to go want to see a James Bond film anyway? But anyway, that's 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 the first film I saw. Dave, what's your Bond relationship been like over the years? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a casual fan at best, I would say. I have a definite appreciation of its, you know, its cultural importance. I've got the, I've got the soundtrack CD with all the theme songs and theme tunes. First James Bond movie I ever saw in the cinema was Moonraker, which is probably why when, when you gave me that pile of movies a couple of months ago, it was the first one that it was the first one that I stuck on. To this day, I haven't ever sat and watched every single movie all the way through. I mean, I'm not a fan of Pierce Brosnan as, a, as an actor, so I, ha- I haven't seen the first couple that he did. I don't think I saw Daniel Craig's second. But I always enjoyed watching them on TV when I was younger. My dad was a big fan of watching them on TV. So as I say, saw Moonraker, and that must have been around about the time my sister was born because I remember being bought a couple of James Bond-related corgi toys around about the time of her christening as a well done for being so well-behaved on the day of Alison's christening type thing. I remember having the car from, what's the, the white car that went underwater. I'm not sure. 
Is that from the Spy Love Me? Yeah. Lo- the um, Lotus is free. Yeah, I had that model as a kid. You know, just just like it, like most little boys. You know what I mean? But it was cool. But I say I've never I've never become completely invested in it. But I I am a, I would say I'm a casual fan, but I do have an appreciation of it. Yeah. I'm afraid I, I, I am far more than a casual fan. Although I wasn't into it particularly in 1969, I subsequently fell totally in love with Bond because in the cinema where I'd originally got to see it, when I was a bit older and I was of an age where I could go to the pictures on my own, I used to pay 10 pence for a James Bond double bill. And it was always like, I remember Dr. No and Goldfinger were a double bill once, and uh, You Only Live Twice and Thunderball, and I would go and just maybe more than once a week and watch them more than once on an evening because you could just stay in the cinema if you wanted until they came back on again. And I was just obsessed by them and remain so to this day. I just finished last week my latest watch through of every single uh, movie. So, yes, I'm a huge fan. Awesome. Yeah, me too. I've been a fan since the 70s. Like Dave, Moonraker was the first Bond film that I saw in the cinema. And ever since then, Sir Roger Moore is still my favourite Bond. And I've always said, you can't beat a good Roger. Butty Boy's a lonely boy, we've had all this, we've even had people commenting on Twitter about this sort of stuff the last couple of days. Behave. Yeah, I've been a big Bond fan since then and loved Moore films, seen them all in the cinema as they came out. And then in the 90s, when GoldenEye came out, I just loved it. And I just thought, this, rem- this reminded me what, exactly why I love Bond. And I used to do a James Bond fanzine Universal Exports, which ran for about nine or ten issues. And that was it was a labour of love, got quite a lot of interesting stuff in it. Some of the stuff featured the early drafts of Goldeneye, an early draft of Tomorrow Never Lies. There's a draft of Moonraker, which has got completely different stuff in it that later turned up in Octopussy. Um, the world is not enough. I suppose that people will be thinking, how does Honor Majesty's Secret Service fit into the Doctor Who family tree that we do with the power of three? If you have a quick look through the cast, you'll see there's a hell of a lot of Doctor Who people in there. There's the late Diana Rigg, who we had in Matt Smith's era. There is George Baker, who was in Full Circle. There's James Bree, who was in several stories, including Full Circle as well. And of course, there's Joanna Lumley, who was the first female Doctor. Back of course, in- Bernard, Bernard Horsall, with the peroxide hair that he still has in the war games. Who yes, was on a couple of other stories. The same year, in fact. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask about that one, but you know, I wonder which one he made first, or if they were mm. made around about the same time. There's probably, yeah. probably dates where you could check that. And let's have a quick talk about it. I mean, Dave, to say you've a casual interest, did you know too much about this film before? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd seen, I had seen it before, I was well aware. I remember it being on television at one point, and my dad being delighted, absolutely, you know, in television. Uh, 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 this never happened to the other fella. Absolutely thinking that line was hilarious. And I remember sort of being of the vague sort of thought, you know, that different people play James Bond, different people play Doctor Who. Yeah, it's fine, I can handle that. I mean, I have seen it before. I think the theme tune is probably my favourite Bond theme tune. Not a song, obviously, but I think it's great. I mean, I've mentioned him in the, the past, before one of my former flatmates, Ross, he was a, a big James Bond fan, and this was his favourite movie. And we definitely did watch it together at one point, but as I say, the, the only one, the only thing I could remember from it was the guy getting sort of pulped by the, the sort of machine that was digging through the ice. That was the only thing that I'd remember from it. I was really taken by it. I really enjoyed it. I was properly invested and quite sort of, quite sad at the end, yeah. So if we go with the three credits, of course, this is the first James Bond film which doesn't star Sean Connery. 
film, where do you stand in the pre-credits? Because a lot of people have a problem with this never happened to the other fella. I used to have a problem with it, but then I, I kind of grew up a little bit and you know, began to understand that you can actually have a joke and you can break the fourth wall. My problem isn't really with breaking the fourth wall. My problem is with Lazenby himself, which we'll come on to later on. And the fact is, you know, I think a Bond film can really only be as good as its main actor. You know, a convoy only moves as fast as its slowest member. And there is no doubt that Lazenby is not an actor. I still think he did, a, he did the series a big favour by turning down the offer of a contract to do more movies. I think there's an alternative history to be written about what would have happened if Connery had played Bond in Her, on Her Majesty's Secret Service and what kind of film that would have been. There's also a school of thought that would say that Connery would not have been able to do the final scene where his wife is dying in his arms. That may well be true. Personally, I think it would have been great for Roger Moore to have come in at 1969 to do this as his first one and then to stick with it beyond that. I hated this film for many, many years. I really did. This was my least favourite Bond film for a very long time. But you only want to talk about the pre-credit sequence, don't you? So I'll, I'll, I'll keep my comments to that. You know, it's, it's fine. It's very, it's very close to the book. I think at this point, let me point out that just because any film adaptation is loyal to the original Fleming novel is not in itself a plus point. It, you know, it just so happens to be like the book, but so what? I mean, if, if if the whole point of adapting a film is to adapt, in other words, to change it for the screen, then you, you should be able to take liberties with the plot and with characters. So just because it's similar to the book, I mean, who cares? It just so happens to be a very good novel. And I'll come on to why that doesn't necessarily make it a good movie, even if it's quite accurate to the novel. But yeah, it's it's a good one. I the, the fight is a bit silly because as you can tell that it's in very 1960s style. The fight sequence on, on the beach is speeded up at points to try and make it look a bit more dramatic. And I've never understood why they had to do that. His wink to camera, you know, it is what it is. It's fine. But Whatever you think of the, the initial sequence, as Davy says, when you get into the, the title sequence, the music, all is forgiven because it's just a fantastic beginning. The thing that really irks me about the pre-credit stuff, I mean, I've got no problem with the fight and it looks vicious and you can tell that it's definitely Lazenby taking advantage of the fact that he is a raw actor, in inverted commas, and they are, he's absolutely brutal. And you can tell this guy actually could hold his own in a fight, which I think is great. But my big problem with the pre-credit stuff is that Aston Martin. It's horrible. It is the most horrible Aston Martin that they've ever produced. Is it not the DB5? No, it's the DBS. Ah, if you, right. you look at the back of the car, it's more angular. This is all over my head, listeners. I don't know about you. Because I think, I could be wrong here, but in the book, in the original novel, features Bond for the very first time driving an Aston Martin like in, within the yeah. books. And I think that was because by the time he wrote in the Magic Secret Service, Goldfinger was in production. Oh no, maybe not, no. Well, yeah, it must be around about the same time. Or maybe Goldfinger was just about to be made. Anyway, that's that was the first time that the novelised Bond had, had driven a, an Aston Martin. Until then, he'd driven, of course, his Bentley supercharger with an Amherst, Amherst supercharged engine. Tom, Tom. Have you ever kissed a girl? <laughs> well, certainly. <laughs> I've got to say, my main critique 
of the pre-title sequence was the 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 day from night filming. You know, they obviously they put a filter on the lens. They filmed it in the middle of the afternoon and they put a filter over it to make you think it was nighttime. I've become quite sensitive to that particular sort of technical trick over the years. So I find it a bit jarring. I really like the the pre-titles. I you know I there's very little about this film that I didn't like at all, to be honest. I thought it was charming. I liked the fact that he expected just to kind of walks off with a girl, but the girl buggers off in his car instead. I fully expected Doctor Who under Stephen Moffat to have that, to, to copy that line at some point. It might well have done it and I've blanked it out, I'm not sure. I really like it. I can't tell one car from another at the best of times, so that didn't affect me in the slightest. <laughs> Fantastic set of titles from Morris Binder again, bringing in elements from the past films, and it's a way to show that this is still the same James Bond who we know, there's clips from Goldfinger, clips from Doctor No, clips from, from Russia with Love, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice. So we can see that there is a continuity here, but it's so beautifully done as well. It's so beautifully British iconography as well in there. Tom? I like it because I do like it when Bond movies reference past films, but I, I, I always feel that this is slightly too defensive. This is the producers getting really worried about whether or not their new actor is going to land. And they are really ratcheting up the, the, the references to the past. And they, they do it in a later sequence when Bond thinks he's resigned from the service and he's looking through his desk. It's the first time you see Bond at his desk. And he's got all sorts of mementos from previous adventures. You know, the, the breathing capsule from Thunderball and the knife from Dr. No, stuff like that. And, and I think they're trying just a wee bit too hard rather than just... Uh, it's maybe a reflection of, of the lack of confidence they had in Lazenby at this point, that they felt they had to just ram it down the viewers' throats that this is still James Bond. There's a little element of that in The Living Daylights. At the beginning of The Living Daylights, when Timothy Dalton is, is strutting his stuff, and I love The Living Daylights, one of my favourites, but it's notable that every single person Bond meets, whether it's the woman in the oil station who you know helps him, or whether it's the other member of the of the secret service they all know him they all say oh it's you bond good to work with you again mr bond and everybody recognizes him and calls him mr bond and refers to previous adventures they've been on and it's a it's fine you know it's a it's a sensible enough strategy when a new actor's taking over i just feel that in on the margin secret service it's just a wee bit defensive and overdone i quite enjoy the fact that they are just emphasizing it but i know what you mean that there is that element of we're not so sure. But you look at how it's done in Doctor Who with Matt Smith, the fact that he retains David Tennant's costume for the majority yeah. of the story. So it does give you that visual continuity. Yeah. Essentially, this is the, the same guy. Dave, what did you think about the titles? Did you quite enjoy them? Yeah, to my eyes, it's typical sort of James Bond fare, you know, silhouetted ladies moving around with some other stuff going on. I love the sort of sands going through the, the hourglass sort of motif of the, of the clips. And as I said already, the tune is amazing. I actually, I think it's more evocative and more exciting than the actual James Bond theme itself. I adore the theme tune to, to HMSS. I think it's, I think it's huge. It's great. It's an absolute beaut. And this is what I, what as I say, as, as a casual fan, to me, a James Bond title sequence is the all muchness of a muchness. Really, you know, the only thing that I, that I thought was obviously, you know, as, as you've said, this they, they've done this to reassure the the audience, and I think that's fine. Connery had made such an impact. I can understand that there'd be, there'd be some nerves at various points in the, you know, in, amongst the production. So, no, I thought, I thought it was fine. I would have been worried if, if they'd done it every time the actor had changed. You know, you could have thought, oh, right, we get it. But I think as a one-off, as a, as a very important stage in the development, I think it was okay. 
First of all, I want to ask a question. Maybe Kenny can answer this. Do we know why they didn't opt for a pop song, you know, sung by a famous star at the time? Because it's one of the it's one of the the only time they, they didn't do that. And I just wondered why, if there was a reason for that. But the second observation is it's really interesting that if you, as I say, I think this is quite a defensive start off for the Lazenby film. Two films later, Roger Moore does his debut, and they are so confident in the ability of the leading man that he doesn't even appear in the opening sequence. There are three short stories in the pre-credit sequence in Live and Let Die, and Moore doesn't appear in any of them. And that's quite a major difference between what they were trying to do. They clearly decided that they were, they were just so confident that Moore was going to knock this out of the park that he didn't even need to appear before the credits, which I think, which is probably the right judgment because Moore is brilliant in that film, but it's a remarkable thing, way to start a new actor. I have no idea why they didn't do that, but like David, I absolutely love the theme tune. I think it's John Barry is just... It's so wonderful with those incredible 60 synths pulsing away in the background, making that very distinct sound that you only really got from 60 synthesizers. It's just such a great piece of music. And the version that David Arnold and the Propellerheads did Aye. years later in Shaken and Stirred album is just brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. It's, it's a work of genius, taking a bit of a, a popular dance music act like Propellerheads. I'm working with somebody like David Arnold. Popular dance music act, down with the kids there, Kerry. Selling Bruno Brooks the 1991 Top of the Pops. <laughs> but I think it's the full seven minute version that they did is just audio perfection so let's move on let's go to the start of the film itself Bond has met Contessa Teresa Tracy de Vincenzo and meets her at the casino where she's got no money and Bond helps her out and then she repays the debt in kind and then Bond wakes the next morning to find that she's gone so what do we think of Tracy? I think it's a fantastic character, very different to what we've gone before, really. The fact she's so cold and distant, she uses Bond and then she buggers off. She's the third Avengers girl to become a Bond girl, although not sequenced because by this time Joanna Lumley hadn't yet been in the Avengers, but she was in Bond first in the same film and then, and then went into the Avengers. So there's obviously that close link between the kind of British semi-ironic adventure theme you know that's represented by the Avengers and, and then taking that into Bond and there obviously were quite close cultural links in that respect. What I like about Diana Rigg in this is that she is one of the very few Bond girls from the 60s whose voice is not dubbed. In fact I can't think of any Bond girl before this who wasn't dubbed. Order Blackman. Yes absolutely another Avengers. Uh, that's interesting yeah. Of course when Ursula Andress sang the, the, the song Underneath the Mango Tree, my honey. She was dubbed by Diana Copeland of Bless This House. So I like I like that respect. You know, it's quite, it's it's just, they've gone, they've, they've, they've moved away from the, the kind of arch kind of campness of the, of, the pre, of the Connery Bonds. They've tried to make it, I think, a little bit more hard-hitting. I think it helps that Diana Rigg is the most rounded character of a James Bond girl at this point in the series. Dave, did you like Tracy? Yeah, the obvious thing is that she's not called Pussy Galore. You know, she doesn't. There's no innuendo or anything to her name. It's she's very believable as a as a real person. I was a huge, huge fan of Diana Rigg. Absolutely captivated by anything I've ever seen her in. And jumping ahead to a little bit later in the movie, when you first see her in her in her ice skating outfit, I just, I was just, <gasps> I honestly, my heart skipped a beat. I thought she was wonderful. I mean. I think that her and George Lazenby worked very well together. I was 
you know, to slightly maybe I'll come back to we'll come back to George, I'm sure. But I thought they they had a real chemistry. It was very believable that they that the relationship developed the way it did. I think they both played off each other very well. And she, you know, she's just she's so capable in in, in everything and anything. And you know, as yeah, so just as I say, just really the relationship was really believable. And she obviously was a big part of that. I loved when she was driving in a sort of stock car moment sort of sequence and you know, she's driving with her with her tongue out. <laughs> you know, she's very cute, she's very, very likable. And not over, you know, there was a few sort of cleavage shots here and there, but you know, she wasn't overly sexualized like some of the, the later Bond girls yeah. have become. It was great. Plot moves on a little bit when we find out when Bond gets kidnapped by Tracy's father, Mark Andraco, the head of the Union Course. And Bond gets his help to find Blofeld which picks up a bit from the previous film. And then, of course, he pops into London and has to become an expert in genealogy when they learn that Count Balthazar de Blochamp is wanting to verify his genealogy. So we have Bond as Sir Hilary Bray when he meets George Baker. And then for about the next, it seems like the next 40-odd minutes, we have the voice of George Baker dubbing over uh, George Lazenby, which I suppose is a bit of a change from the Bond girls. At least they had to have some sort of dubbing going on. But I think in many ways it helps because I think Lazenby's voice is not, it doesn't quite feel as natural. It just doesn't sound right as to my ears. It, it feels like he is trying to act it, whereas, and again, try to play a British accent. But for me, I think that the dubbing actually helps hugely. Tom? I think you're talking shite. Oh, really? I think if you hire an actor to play an iconic role at Bond and you cannot trust him to speak for 40 minutes of the film, you've cast the wrong guy. And anyone watching this, it takes you completely out of the story because you know that his voice is being dubbed. You don't believe for a second that he sounds like that. You know that they've put in someone else's voice because he can't act, basically. And it is a fundamental weakness of the film. And it's, it's, it reminds me now why I hated this film for so long. It was a terrible casting decision. It is a terrible decision to, to, to cast a guy and then say, well, okay, can't act. Let's get another actor to provide his voice. That's just utter nonsense. Interestingly, if you listen to the audiobook narrated by David Tennant, Tennant reads the whole novel, you know, as the narrator doing his English accent. And then when he comes to playing Bond as Hilary Bray, he goes back into Scottish accent and gives Hilary Bray a Scottish accent, which works really, really well if you listen to that particular audiobook. It's one of my favourite ones from that series. But that's a lot more believable and understandable than this utter mess that the producers made here. I think having George Baker do the voice makes it almost a bit more believable. You've actually got somebody who can act and put a bit of emotion no, into because, his voice. No, because George Baker isn't in the scene. George Baker at this point is still back in England. So why is his voice coming out of a guy who's now hundreds of miles away in Switzerland? Makes no sense at all. Dave? I'm going to fall between you both on this. I thought I thought Lazenby was very good, full stop. The thing that troubled me was finding out he was only 29 when he made it because he looked about 40. Is that right? You know, was he only yeah. 29? Good. Yeah, because the lines on his forehead, they obviously, you know, you think back to people like Sasha Distel who are very famous and his skin looked like, you know, an old shoe. So maybe they, maybe maybe moisturiser for men wasn't quite a big thing in the 60s. I was very taken by him. I thought, I mean, James Bond, to me, is not a character that does a lot of acting. He's just there to kind of be the centre chunk of the story and everything sort of happens around and he goes through it. I mean, I don't think you have to be 
an amazing actor. He, he had the he had the presence. I thought he had, he had a confident swagger, which really impressed me in a lot of the scenes. He had the confident swagger to pull it off. The dubbing, I didn't find it particularly off-putting or distracting. Equally, I didn't feel it was something that undercut Lazenby. It just struck me as, I mean, for a long time, I remember being, you know, Ross telling me years ago that he'd been dubbed by George Baker because I just, the first time I watched it, just assumed that Bond was putting on a funny voice to convince everyone he was Hillary Bray. So, you know, I wasn't distracted by it. It didn't take me out of it. I was surprised that that scene went on as long as it did. I thought it was really the real stodge in the middle of it. I mean, when I watched the movie this week in preparation, I split it in two and I basically cut that scene in half. That's, that scene was where I kind of, that interminable sequence of them in the, the mountaintop place, that was where I kind of cut it because I was getting a bit bored. I was fine with it. Again, maybe just maybe that's a symptom of me being just watching it as a casual viewer. I thought it was okay. The thing that we must the thing that really, really made my, my ears prick up was when Bond was sort of showing his coat of arms and it had the motto that the world is not enough. Now, as a casual viewer, I was like, ooh, because I recognized that as being the name of one of the other movies. So I thought, well, that's quite good. So I like that aspect of it. In that movie, Bond actually says family motto. He says, world is not enough. And then he says, family motto. I can't remember if I've seen that one or not. I don't think so. The only Brosnan one I'm, I'm definitely sure that I've seen at the cinema was Tomorrow Never Dies. I can't remember if I've seen it. The, the world is not enough. I don't think I have that because I know that that's the one that they strangled Shirley Manson while she was singing the theme tune. You mentioned the being place, Peace Gloria, which I think looks glorious, beautiful place. And I would love to go and visit one day. It's on my list of places to visit before I die. And we get to meet the Angels of Death and Blofeld. Now, of course, the whole thing with Blofeld here is slightly bizarre, given that Bond had met him in You Only Live Twice when he's played by Donald Pleasance. That was a question I had, actually, because they are face-to-face, and I sort of thought, right, Blofeld here is behaving like he doesn't know who he is. That was one thing I was going to ask, was had they met face-to-face in any of the other movies? Very much so, where they have a rather fun exchange in a volcano in You Only Live Twice. So this is where the whole sort of it's the same guy sort of thing kind of falls yeah, down. That makes me ask, you know, dramatically then, they're both then played by different actors. So it's, you know, interesting. Did Bond get surgery? Did Bond regenerate? Is he a Time Lord? Ooh. I think this is where fans get too uptight about continuity. It's like I remember reading something, some fan had complained that in Casino Royale, it's Bond's first mission but M is still his boss and M was his boss in Goldeneye yeah that's because it's made up mate it's, that's because <laughs> it's not actually real and I don't think you know you can't really worry too much about continuity with the Bond films they're a lot better than the X-Men movies at consistency I'll say that much <laughs> See, my theory is that James Bond 007 is a title that is bestowed on an agent <laughs> oh, don't give us this one do not give us this theory this I've is heard that madness this is madness what do we think of Blofeld being an American like that? Because obviously we've had Donald Pleasance introducing him, playing him with a, with a cold, slightly camp menace. And then along comes Telly Savalas, who is just so blatantly American and in your face with it. Tom, how do you find this Blofeld? Well, yeah, he's, he's fine in that he is very good. I like Telly Savalas as, as Blofeld and I don't particularly mind him being American. I mean, in the books originally, he's, I think, German or at least, you know, Slovakian or that, that kind of Central Eastern Europe origin. And 
you know, it doesn't really matter an awful lot. It matters more about the caliber of the actor, I think. I mean, when Charles Gray played him in, in Diamonds Are Forever, you, you didn't imagine Blofeld as a really camp, cross-dressing Englishman until he actually did it. Uh, so, no, I, I think it's very good. It's interesting. At the very beginning, that's kind of, you, you mentioned about the kind of crossovers, the, the tendency for Doctor Who fans to be also James Bond fans because there are so many similarities, not just that they all started in the early 60s, but, you know, you've got the changing face of James Bond, you've got his arch nemesis, who sometimes changes his face as well. But the, the other parallel between Bond and Doctor Who is actually Sherlock Holmes. And, and, and you, you, you do generally find quite a lot of crossovers there, not just because, of course, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss also produced but Sherlock. But, but, you know, there is that kind of theme of a, maybe not somebody who changes the face, although he's been played by many different actors. But, but you know, there are parallels there. The arch enemy, the, 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 the master of crime, whether that's the master or whether it's Moriarty or whether it's Blofeld. Dave, how did you find Mr. Blofeld? Well, first, your first point was to compare him against Donald Pleasance and I couldn't do that because I, I'm guessing I've seen the previous film at some point everyone not has. To, yeah but not enough to, to register or have an opinion to, to be able to contrast them and compare them I like Telly Savalas I'm old enough to remember Kojak being on television just about I couldn't compare I couldn't watch this movie and compare him to any of the others I just had to take him as he was and I thought he was good he was confident and you know I was impressed that he kind of didn't leave it to his henchmen to get into the chase that he was there as, as trying to hunt down Bond and Tracy as they were, you know, trying to get away. I thought he was, you know, for this movie, I thought he was great. I didn't have a problem with him at all. And I'm interested that you, that you obviously, that Ken has a, a negative opinion because it's, it's clear you, you thought Donald Pleasance was, was better. That's interesting because that makes me then now want to watch the other film to make the comparison because I don't have the knowledge to sort of, to make that. That's interesting. Something should mention around this before we leave his Gloria is Peter Hunt's direction. This was the only Bond film that he directed, having previously been an editor. And you've done that great sequence in From Russia With Love with the, the cut, cut, cut fight sequence on the train. The, some of the direction is, is it's just stunning, particularly yeah, the, the nightmarish stuff in his Gloria before we leave when you've got the girl under the hypnosis. And then Bond's escape on the skis, brilliant. And then, as Dave mentioned earlier, the ice rink stuff. What do you think about the, the direction of this? The direction is, is terrific. Some of the long shots of the ski chase are just tremendous, really innovative. It's a pity he didn't do more, actually. Uh, I thought some of the action sequences were just superb. I think if you don't look on this as a Bond movie, if you look at just as a standalone spy movie that just happened to be made in the late 1960s, it does quite successfully stand on its own. You don't need to be a Bond fan. You don't need to have seen all the rest of them to appreciate this one. I think that's its strength. Although I will come on to make some less positive remarks about the central evil plot once we get to that. Dave, how do you find the direction? Generally, I thought it was pretty, some some of it I thought was pretty stunning, like, you know, almost preempting Apocalypse Now with the shots of the helicopters and coming out the, the, the sun towards the end and all. Some really witty stuff, as I mentioned already, with when Diana Rigg was driving with her with her tongue sort of sticking out and the, the intercutting of all that sequence. It was quite funny actually because there was points with all the the sequence when they're curling and then the the exciting chase through the snow. I thought for a second I was watching the second Beatles film. You know, <laughs> that was watching Help. The thing that struck me actually, and again this is this is I suppose being sort of if you're to sound a bit pretentious for a moment, if you're cine literate, I was very distracted at times by the number of occasions when you would have a gorgeously composed, exciting exterior action shot 
and then it would cut to an actor with some back projection going on. There was maybe a little bit too much of that, I thought. You know, obviously I'm aware of the practicalities and how at the time it would have been less obvious to the audience and stuff. But it was very slick. It was, and as I say, I was properly invested in James and in Tracy. So if the director's doing a good job, then you're going to get invested in the story and in the characters. And I was. And yeah, I thought, I thought he did a really good job. Of course, Bond films are well known for the fact that the villains have a bonkers plot. And in this occasion, we have Blofeld infecting his angels of death and sending them across the world, and only he has the cure. Tom, what did you feel about this one as a Bond film fan? Remember that this film was made two years after You Only Live Twice, which was a plot by Spectre to provoke a nuclear war between the superpowers and destroy the Earth and then control what was left, right? Two years later, we've got a plot <laughs> to basically spread VD, I think, <laughs> using using Beautiful Girls, which is probably the most, even for a Bond film, the most misogynist idea I've ever come across. But it is worth noting that it's probably slightly better than the plot in the, the, the novel, which was to send these girls into craft fairs and cattle shows across the Western world and spray the crops with potato blight. And that's just mental. That's just stupid. And it's it doesn't belong in a James Bond film at all. I don't get why. I think I, I really I, the, the the paradox is that the the novel on Her Majesty's Secret Service is a great read, very exciting, moves forward very quickly, and it is a really satisfying read. But if you actually examine the plot, you think, oh, Fleming was really running out of ideas here. Little sidebar, there's a funny bit in the novel on Peace Gloria where Irma Bunt draws the girls' attentions to the lovely Swiss actress Ursula Andress who's having coffee in the restaurant with them. And Fleming wrote that because he and Noel Coward had gone along to watch filming of Dr. No just along the beach from where Goldeneye Fleming's house was and they were introduced to Ursula Andress. And of course, Fleming being a completely mad shagger fell in love head over heels with Ursula Andress was completely captivated by it. And the next novel he was writing was on Her Majesty's Secret Service and that's why he decided to name check her. It's a lovely little internal continuity thing. It's where it gets wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, as a certain TV show might say. You're going to ask me about what I thought of the plot now, then? Yes, I am indeed. Go on, then. Dave, what did you think of the plot? To Kenny, to be honest, it completely passed me by because I was much more engaged in wanting to get back to James and Tracy. And we forgot to mention Kathleen Shell at the start as one of the the links in the Doctor Who family tree. Obviously, she appeared in City of Death, which you both claim is your favourite story of all time ever. So it's shocking that you forgot to mention her. I thought, as James Bond plots, you know, I read a lot of comics, remember, guys? So there's, you know, I'm used to sort of like a lot of weird stuff. I thought it, was, it didn't really impact on me because it, it, I thought it was possibly least interesting part of the film, which probably gives you the same sort of answer that I wasn't too impressed with it either. I was intrigued by the, the very 60s scenes of them all being sort of hypnotised and, you know, conditioned. That was interesting. I kind of thought, right, are they all being conditioned? Are they going to be implanted with impulses? Are they going to go out and kill people, strategic people in, in particular places, that you know, having these impulses put on them? And I wasn't, to be honest, it didn't really register on me what he was actually getting them to do. And then I thought about the laboratory and all that. I thought, all right, are they tie in? But I was impatient by that point. I wanted to get back to the love story, quite frankly. The bit that I really like is the ski chase which I think is brilliant, it's, I say, but apart from the back projection. I really love the bit when Bond is around the ice rink and Blofeld's men are closing in on him 
but he's got no weapons. There is absolutely no way out. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Dave, along comes Tracy, and you just get that beautiful tilt shot, and we turn up to it, and it actually gives me goosebumps every time I see it. And she just, Diana Rigg just looks absolutely stunning with her hair, with that little headband in. It's just a genuine moment of affection. I absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely scene that. I think it's a, interesting what Dave was saying about he just wanted to go back to the love story because it does remind me that, and it's maybe the director's fault, that the film itself doesn't seem to know what it's about. I mean, is it about the story between James and Teresa? Is it about a bonkers plot? Is it about genealogy? Uh, is it about Corsican mafia? There's a lot of elements, as there always are in James Bond films, but it's quite difficult to kind of concentrate or focus on what the point of it actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, because they, they spent so much time setting the genealogy stuff up. You almost sort of wonder if that was going to be involved and in, were they going to unfurl a coat of arms that was going to send Blofeld falling backwards into the ice chopping machine? Because this is so loyal faithful to the book it's actually difficult it's impossible actually to extricate it from the troubles that Fleming was having writing at the time writing Bond at the time because if you look at the film in the context of the novel you realize that the next novel he wrote was was uh, You Only Live Twice which is just the worst thing that Fleming ever wrote I think it's just awful and if you think the plot for On Magic Secret Service was bad wait till you get a load of what you're, uh, You Only Live Twice and, and you know we don't have time to talk about it but it really is shit. And you think, you know, Ian, come on, mate, you're going to have to raise your game a wee bit here. And I think On A Magic Secret Service does, does suffer a wee bit from, from Fleming's lack of, of, of uh, inspiration here. Interesting. Picking up there on what Dave was saying about the romance, Bond and Tracy get away in the car and then they end up in that barn and it's so beautifully lit with the red lights from the headlights and the brake lights. And then Bond proposes which, of course, it's quite hard for us now to put that in context at the time because obviously we're all grown-ups now and we've, we appreciate it, but that must have come as a real shock for those who are watching it because I remember the first time I watched it, I'd you know, watching it as an adult. I'd seen it as a kid and it had never quite registered. James Bond gets married and it just sort of passed me by, but then coming back to you know in my teens, it's like, bloody hell, even James Bond can get married. Which I suppose is something people had said about Ian Fleming, given his notorious habits of womanising, shall we say. There's hope for us all then, isn't there? <laughs> self, obviously. Well, surely the most important question in all of this is, is this like Die Hard? Is On a Magic Secret Service a Christmas movie? It, it takes place around Christmas, and the book certainly is set over Christmas. But is it a Christmas? Is there is there any part of the plot that depends crucially on it being Christmas? I would say no, probably. Yes. But is there? I would say yes, because then we wouldn't get that wonderful Do You Know How Christmas Trees Are Grown song performed by Nina. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Is it wonderful? I, I don't really know it. I don't remember that bit at all. I must have been checking Instagram at that point. I think you'll probably hear it at the end of this podcast, uh, Davies. Hopefully not. I... <laughs> I was going to suggest we actually take a quick break and listen to it now. Christmas trees, here's the reason why. In the winter, rain will freeze and the trees will die. Do you know how Christmas trees are grown? 
Wasn't that charming? Didn't you just enjoy that song? I'm not sure sorry, I'm going to add it was, to my Christmas playlist, but carry on. I was um, <laughs> sorry, I, I missed it. I was checking Instagram. <laughs> oh dear. Tracy gets captured as Bond gets away. So what are you going to do when your fiancé has been kidnapped by an evil criminal mastermind? There's only one solution. You obviously have to go to the Corsican Mafia. Oh, that's what I would do. What else? Absolutely. Exactly. I'd get my pal Rossi, six foot ten. I mean, go, going back to that ski chase where Tracy is captured by Blofeld's lot. When I went to see this in the cinema back in 69, I think... Looking back now, I probably fell asleep for the first two thirds of it because I don't have any memories from the first half or the first two thirds. All I remember is that ski chase. I remember us all excitedly repeating the line about the guy had a lot of guts. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you read the John Rain book, yeah, I don't know, John Rain hosts this brilliant podcast called uh, Pod, and he, he brought a book of his own about, you know, reviewing each of the, the Bond films in turn, and it's called Thunderbook. And he's incredibly funny, but there's a bit where he points out that this man who's been chasing them has just died in the most awful way imaginable by being crunched up into little bits in a in, in basically a, a machine for you know shredding snow. The plumes of white snow turn red as his guts come out. Bond says to Tracy, who he doesn't really know that well, he had a lot of guts. And instead of looking at him aghast and saying, you fucking monster... <laughs> She smiles and laughs, which proves she's a psycho as well. Yeah, I love that bit. I read that great. Like it's great. five times, honestly, because you can see bits of his uniform, his jacket getting, you know, filtered through it and just go, oh, you wonder how, I was going, God, I wonder how quick it was. Did he, you know, know was it first? Oh, it was glorious. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Tracy obviously had, must have had a bit of an edge to her to live the life that she led and all. So maybe she, you know, maybe she was genuinely amused by what James had to say. Yeah. She was a widow, you know, before she yeah. had her bond. Yeah. I think she wondered what her first husband died of. Yeah, I think it does. It goes into that in the book, but I can't remember. Neither can I, which is really annoying. So, gents, what did we think of the attack on Piz Gloria with those helicopters? Dave, you mentioned earlier about the fantastic shot that you thought was like Apocalypse Now with the helicopters in the sunlight. And then that leads into that fantastic shot with Bond sliding along the ice on his stomach with a machine gun, obviously shooting at their ankles. What did you think, Tom? Brilliant. And really pissing off the International Red Cross. Of course. Who made a formal complaint. And understand it, disguised themselves as Red Cross helicopters and then attacked uh, the mountain hideaway of an international supercriminal. So that's not what Red Cross really are up to. Dave, how did you enjoy the rescue of Tracy? Yeah, it was fine. As I said already, it looked really, really classy. I liked the subterfuge. It was quite funny, the, the conversation her dad had over the radio and stuff. And the juxtaposition between stuff with the helicopters and the, the awkward back projection and other scenes was was a little jarring. And I sort of thought was, there is a really, really good movie almost struggling to get out of this in, in some ways, you know, from a technical point of view. Yeah, I thought it was fine. It was the typical sort of last act, bangs and flashes sort of thing that you get in a lot of James Bond movies. Aside from the, the beautiful helicopter shots, I didn't find it too remarkable. I struggle to remember it now, to be honest. That's about it, really. <laughs> what I remember from my very first viewing was the bobsleigh chase, which is just fantastic. Of course. Just of tremendous. Course. We use Iconic a lot, both in Power of Three and, and also with regards to James Bond, but my goodness, that is such a brilliant, brilliant scene. 
yeah, that was, I suppose, after the, the, the attack on the... So that's, I probably might have forgotten it. Yeah, that was good. I remember Bobsleys seemed to be quite a big deal in the 70s, probably the first time I saw the film. So I remember on Blue Peter, they showed you how to make one out of a milk bottle for your action man. That's what I found myself thinking about. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, it was very exciting. That bit when Blofeld's holding James's head against the ice as they went scooting past, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to break his neck. That was horrendous. No, that was good. I'd forgotten about that bit, yeah. I think it's the sound in that scene as well, Dave. It's just where you can hear that. It sounds absolutely vicious. I mean, it sounds exactly the way you would expect it to be. Yes. Yeah. The direction of that, again, Peter Hunt on top form, the quick cuts on it. And so, although it does look a bit rubbish at the end when Blofeld's pushed away and he ends up getting stuck in a tree branch and uh, ends up swinging that way. It's a bit of a strange escape. And obviously, by the time Bond had come back, he had disappeared. Yeah. Before we talk about the end of the film, Let's talk about the love sequence. So beautifully done with that Louis Armstrong song, We Have All the Time in the World, which was quite ironic as he passed away soon after recording it. But for me, it is actually one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And it's also one of the best songs ever performed with that vocal from Armstrong. It just feels so right. So many people don't realise that it was written for a James Bond film. Tom, what's your thoughts on it? Well... I'm conflicted on this because I think if you want to know, did the producers, did Eon Productions look at this and think that was a good thing to do in a James Bond film? Obviously, the answer is no, because they've never repeated it. So was it appropriate to this one particular Bond film? Now, you're right that the music is wonderful and Armstrong's rendition is just heartbreaking. It's just a fantastic song. Never better used, incidentally, than in Guinness adverts with Rutger Hauer in the 1980s. But... I am not entirely comfortable with its use here. I think, once again, if you're looking on Her Majesty's Secret Service as a standalone movie, then it works absolutely fine. But I think the fact that Lazenby's in it, the fact that this song is in it, that there's a couple of other things that they never did again with Bond films, it adds to this really not being part of the oeuvre. It, it really means, it does kind of lend the idea that this is a standalone movie that just happens to feature James Bond rather than one of the James Bond films. And in that context, absolutely fine. But as a Bond film, as part of the canon, it jars a little bit because it's just never done any other time and I'm not sure it works as a James Bond, as, as something to do in James Bond films. As I say, it works as as something you do in this film because this is a love story and it's the only James Bond film that's ever been a love story so in that respect it works but I, I just I raised an eyebrow the first time I saw it and I've never been quite comfortable with it just because you know it's supposed to be a Bond film Of course the visuals for this feature the montage of Bond and Tracy falling in love as they go horse riding pick flowers and... Dave as a casual Bond fan what sort of impression did it make in you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was charming. It's the sort of thing that's been done in lots of other movies and it's been lampooned many times since. Like, I always think of the Naked Gun when there's the, the montage of, of Leslie and Priscilla Presley, sort of, you know, when they play the, the Herman's Hermit song over the top of it and they're getting to know montage and, and you see them <laughs> coming out of the cinema laughing and they've been to see Platoon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is, um, so... <laughs> That See, that's, that's the thing, though, isn't it? That, that Bond genuinely doesn't do montage. Yeah, it's, You can't really think of many other Bond films where there's a montage in it. 
No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it was, as we established, it was the James Bond film was quite unique. And I think it worked very well because, as I say, the thing that captivated me most about the film was was the playing and the relationship between George and, and Diana and the, and the characters. So I thought it was fine. I mean, it is never a struggle to look at Diana Rigg. You know, and she's beautiful and she's stunning in this film. She's absolutely incredible. So, you know, it was, I like, you know, I like the stuff with them just sort of like looking at shops and all that sort of thing. It was nice. Everything that Tom's saying about it being, you know, separate and distinct from the oeuvre, I think all this works. If you look at that as a positive, I think this montage scene works in a positive for that. It gives the film its own unique identity and it really sets up the poignancy of what happens at the end. It shows that this woman is obviously very special for James Bond to feel about her, whereas for the rest of the movies, every other one I've seen, all I can remember is just, you know, humping and dumping. Well, that's good to know that the gadgets and all the expensive stunts made such an impression on you, Dave. I just mean, obviously, in comparison to the, the way that James's relationship with these female characters, you know, that's what I mean by that, you know. OK, I'll let you off. Let's talk about the last scene. For me, this is the scene where Lazenby actually shows he might actually have had a teeny tiny bit of potential when he's got Tracy in his arms. It's so beautifully played. The fact he goes from absolute elation, off they go in the bogging Aston Martin, pull over, and then from a Boont and Blofeld strike. Tom, did this make any impact on you first time around in the cinema? It did. I, I do remember feeling really quite upset. I don't know if, if as a five-year-old I was crying or not, but it was certainly unexpected and I didn't this is not what my big brothers had told me James Bond films were about. And it did leave a big impact on me. It's funny when I watch it now, that scene between after they leave the wedding, between that and drive-by attack, is incredibly stressful. It's quite tense because you know it's coming. Yeah. But when you try to imagine what it's like when you watch it for the very first time, there's no hint, no suspicion at all that anything bad is coming. This is just a happy couple leaving in their honeymoon. And it's so shocking when it actually happens, so downbeat. Once again, you know, it's, it's yet another thing that this Bond film does that others don't do. You never get a James Bond film, arguably aside for, well, let's see. Well, no, actually, it's the most downbeat ending of any, of any Bond film. This was actually the scene that Timothy Dalton had to act when he auditioned uh, for the part in, in 1985, 86. And you can see why it would test the metal of any actor and, and, and as someone who's who, who's not a fan of Lazenby I think you're right Kenny his, his performance here is superb and does suggest that there was an actor in him somewhere it's just a pity it didn't emerge until the last few seconds I'd seen the film before I mean I thought the ending was was very painful to watch and you know as I've said I, th I thought that George was very good throughout and I was really struck at certain you know at the, the lavishness of the wedding the scene where he kind of waved to Money Penny and threw her his hat, you know, that was sort of, that was really sweet. And you really felt that it's, it's like a punch in the stomach when it happens because it's so well done. Because James just gets up and says it's, it's Blofeld. He runs around to, you know, to, to start the car and, and then you see the hole in the windscreen. It's almost the equivalent of part four of Earthshock. <laughs> you know, it's a very, very downbeat sort of thing. And what I was going to ask, you know, does the next James Bond film does it dwell on it? Does it do they do they reference it? Do they or do they just decide to visit Heathrow Airport and forget about it? Uh, it's a bit of a cop out, actually. You see Bond traveling the world looking for Blofeld, but he doesn't look particularly emotionally upset, and they only use it basically as a hook to get into the film. It's not. It's kind of a 
uh, you know, let's get revenge on Blofeld. But, you, you know, by the time Connor was persuaded to come back for Diamonds of Forever, he was not taking it remotely seriously. And that comes across very much. Yeah, I have seen Diamonds of Forever. That's the one with the incredibly camp couple who he blows up at the end, doesn't it? And Joe St. John yeah. with a tape yeah. in the bikini. Um, not, just, not just camp, an incredibly homophobic depiction of a gay couple. Yeah. But, you know, it was yeah. the early 70s, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Can I just yep. say one thing before we continue here? Davey, I honestly, it is beyond my comprehension that you can honestly say that you thought George Lazenby was a good actor at any point in this other than the last couple of minutes. In all seriousness, he, he's, he's appalling. They, <laughs> they, dubbed, they, they dubbed 40 minutes of him because he couldn't act. And those 40 minutes are the best performance he gives <laughs> when George Baker's providing his voice. I thought, it was you know, useless. And for, you know, for all, for all that I had to, I thought he was, uh, how can I put it? I thought he was perfectly adequate. You know? I thought hey, let's was, let's he, move on. Yeah. <laughs> I take it then that this is one that you'll be watching again at some point, Dave. Well, probably. I mean, Ken, you give me a massive pile of, of DVDs and Blu-rays to get through. I'll probably watch everything. I'll probably watch a few more of them before I go back to it. But I enjoyed it. I mean, as I said already, I had I had definitely seen it before at some point completely when I was flat sharing with Roscoe. And I remember, I don't know if it's one of the movie nights when, you know, we'd sort of take it in turns at the HMV crowd and everybody would come around to mine and we'd watch it, we'd pick a movie in turn. I've got a feeling it might have been one of Rossi's picks then. I should ask him the next time I see him. But I was really, it made much more of an impression on me this time than it did the last time I saw it. I, I had vague memories of when I first saw it on telly. I remembered the scene with Bernard Hovsall and the, the, the safe breakage and, you know, this never happened to another fellow. My dad enjoyed that bit. I would not have a problem watching it again, do it that way. Excellent. And Tom, it is probably my favourite Bond film up there with Spy Who Loved Me and Goldfinger. So I will have no problems with watching it. I mean, let's be honest, if it's on ITV4 any night soon, I'll have it straight back on. As I say, I used to really resent its presence in the canon, but I gave it a, a rewatch just quite recently and I did it with a more open mind and for the first time really did appreciate. And, and in fact, even to a certain extent, appreciate George Lazenby because I think if you, if you go in there expecting to be an Oscar-winning actor, you're going to be disappointed. But if you, if you go in there knowing that this is a guy whose previous acting was promoting a fries bar of chocolate and, and that's kind of it, then... <laughs> You know, you temper your expectations in that respect. You know, he looks the part. And you're right, you know, he walks about with a lot of confidence. Broccoli said that Sean Connery used to move like a panther, and I think you can see Blazenby trying to do the same thing and more or less pulls it off. So he, he doesn't spoil the film for me as much as he used to. It's filmed beautifully. I mean, I really enjoy it. As I say, I, I enjoy it more as a standalone film and as part of the canon. But, you know, that's as far as I would go at this stage. It's no longer my, my least favourite Bond film. Yeah, love it. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's taking a step into the Bondverse, I think we should come back here sometime in the future. Oh, yes. Definitely. I think so, yes. Certainly. Lovely. Tom, <laughs> thank you for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been great. And yes, we, I'm sorry we've run out of time. I thought we had all the time in the world, but apparently not. <laughs> Talking of which, Dave, what are we going to play out with today? Kenny, we're playing out today appropriately with the number four smash, which was a chart hit in November 1969. This is the Cufflinks with Tracy. Tracy, when I'm with you, something you do 
Bounces me off the ceiling Tracy day after day When you're this way I get a love and feeling Three will return in episode 60.